Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Alison Winch. Prop Alison, thank you so much for being with us. And you're wearing a fantastic sort of World War II Battle of Britain jacket, by the look of things, almost. It looks great. It's actually from Asda, but it's pretty, <laughs> cold. It's pretty cold at the moment, so that's why I'm wearing it in the house. It's terrific. But yeah, inside the house suggests not the warmest of days. We've just had a little hailstorm here in Madrid oh. a few minutes ago. Quite different. Yeah. So, Prof, my, my first question is to ask you about what's interesting, dynamizing, troubling, occupying, preoccupying you these days. Sure. So, actually, my first the first thing that comes into my head is pretty domestic. So. Yeah. Just got my daughter off to sleep. I'm just <gasps> hoping that she's going to uh, stay sleeping for the next hour. And I've also, you know, it's in the middle of a teaching term, so I'm marking and planning and stuff. So those are my immediate concerns, but they're also linked to bigger things that I'm thinking about in terms of teaching, teaching cultural studies, teaching promotional media, and also the household as mm. it's you know, the privatised household and and its links to, you know, the political economy and ecology and those kinds of questions. May I ask how old your daughter is? She's two. I have an eight-year-old who is currently, I think, enjoying probably playing a game on an iPad, having just had vegan cheese on toast, Mm-hmm. and water and a cookie <laughs> and i've been asked to give permission i don't know why i was required to give permission for her to have a snack during your and my conversation if she wishes but i've also said in terms of what you were saying about hoping your daughter has a bit of a nap but i've said that she can interrupt us if she needs to um so yeah that's fine well, yes. i've got i've also got an eight-year-old and he's on a He's with his friends at the moment, so that's all good. Well, my daughter just arrived from London last night, or I arrived with her last night, and she's here for four or five days, so it's precious. Anyway, as you say, these things are both very personal, but also they have these ecological, political, economic, and indeed promotional components, uh, as does the, the grading of papers and the experience of teaching, right? Yeah. And your yeah. work, both the, uh, in a sense, academic and the poetic, touches on several of these things. Is it okay to ask you a bit about your poetry or do you, would sure, you yeah. want to stick to it? Okay, so no. your beef with Thomas Hobbes. <laughs> I'm sure many men ask about this. I loved your engagement with Thomas Hobbes. For folks not, a, not familiar with it, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, my poetry collection, Darling Is Me, is a lot of it is um, through the character of Thomas Hobbes, who is both the real Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century philosopher, but also the character of Thomas Hobbes that is sort of funneling my various interests. And so Thomas Hobbes, as I imagine him, is has become pregnant and then has a baby and this sort of um 
he has to really question his idea of individualism. So I suppose like very partly why I chose him, he's supposed to be the founder of individualism. And then how can you be an individual, you know, when you when you're pregnant or when you have a child or when you're connected suddenly to all these people and all these institutions? And so it was fun for me. I found it really that I was able to bounce off this character and it was hugely generative and productive. But as I studied philosophy as an undergraduate and it was just terrible and I didn't understand it at all. There's no sort of historical context of where these philosophers were located. It was very much, this is, you know, this is the philosophy that we're learning. And then I did my PhD in 18th century literature so even though, I, you know, I didn't carry on with these strands, but there's still sort of these characters sort of knock around in my head and these sort of unresolved intellectual, emotional engagements with these bodies of learning, these people, these philosophers, this literature is still there, you know, even though I'm a media studies lecturer. And you may have rejected some of the presumptions or the operation of these things, but they're they're hard to dispense with, aren't they? After all, there are reasons why Hobbes and, and Aristotle is another one who, who with whom you engage a bit, I think. Mm. But I, I love one thing in one of the bits of, that I read, you described Hobbes as, you know, his, his era as being 1588 dash. In other words, he hasn't passed away. <laughs> He's still with us, right? Um and yes, so I suppose, yeah, I mean, his ideas are still reproduced. So we're living in a hyper-individual age, individualised age. Um, so that, yeah, these yeah, these thoughts are constantly reproduced and, 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 and still embodied. And increasingly the difficulty of thinking of oneself as part of a collective and not as part of a, as an individual. At the moment, I'm teaching a first year cultural studies core module. And, you know, I'm, go I'm going on about Thatcher and, <laughs> the, you know, the mind strike, but it's just so, so, that was such a long time ago. And yet I feel that I need to sort of bring it in in order to explain how things weren't always like this and it doesn't have to be this way. Anyway. So looking back on the miners' strike, which was something I did the other day with one of my interlocutors. I mean, I imagine without dating you, you were not born when the miners' strike happened. Yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I was born in 1976. Oh, so yeah. you were seven, eight years old when it happened. Yeah. So yeah. it probably did have an impact on your um, life then yeah. and perhaps later. Is it reasonable to ask you about that impact and then to extrapolate from that to tell us what the message is that you're seeking to give to the students today in your class? Sure. Well, I, brought, I was brought up in Leeds and my mum was, my mum was French, my dad's Welsh. And so, I, you know, I wasn't part of sort of a Yorkshire community. I mean, we, we were living there and, but they, their roots were in Yorkshire, but the miners' strike was such a part of, it's just so formative to my politics as I was growing up because we were all wearing, well, not, you know, it wasn't because we were wearing badges, you know, coal, not doll and singing Maggie Thatcher, Milk Snatcher. And, but it was all everyone, you know, it was all everyone talked about. It was just, it was on the TV. It was all the neighbours talked about. It's what we talked about at school. 
it's just such a part of our culture so me and my best friend and my brother we used to play this game I'd be Arthur Scargill she'd be Maggie Thatcher and my brother would be Ronald Reagan and <laughs> these were the ease were the sort of the goodies and baddies uh-huh. and the games that we would play so completely formative to my politics and you know a lot of who I am and in the in the lecture I was talking about identity and identity is becoming and how you know just think thinking looking at it in lots of different lots of different directions identity is becoming and one of them about the individual and the collective and you know obviously using a lot of Stuart Hall there because Stuart Hall's just so amazing and identity and his book Familiar Stranger as well as everything else he's written is so embodied so much he describes his experience and links it to these wider political and cultural forces which just really you know speaks to the students in a way that they can locate themselves in the theory at least that's the idea and then I was thinking about identity as becoming in relation to the dance floor as a place to sort of trans not so much transcend the body but to collect others and I was watching a documentary and the filmmaker was saying how following the miners strike we see rave culture and rave culture as a kind of response to these breakdown of solidarities and connectivities and looking for that on the dance floor which I thought was quite interesting you know I loved I loved clubbing and I loved dancing and I loved the connectivity of that so it was quite interesting to think about those parallels there and just to give some context for folks outside Britain because uh, the plurality of listeners are in the US but not the majority and probably a quarter of listeners are based in Britain the the milk snatcher remark about Margaret Thatcher refers to when she was a minister in what had been the previous conservative government and she'd been engaged in sort of reducing various options for poor children basically and uh, the the minor strike was 83 84 and it was about Thatcher's government deciding to close down numerous pits uh, these were the mining was a partially nationalized industry and the miners had very successfully struck against the previous Tory government 10 years before and she was determined to take them on and and beat them that these were huge and bloody battles uh, they involved really sad divisions often within families and within friendship networks as some decided to cross picket lines and work and became an in inverted commas scabs and others refused to do so and this also got connected to rock music to feminist issues to all sorts of important oppositional fronts in britain i think it's fair to say yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. and in fact the milk was for it was universal it was for all children so i remember drinking milk at primary school how it was really cold in the winter, we'd have to put it on the radiator, and then in, in the summer, it was just really hot, really sort of curdling. And when you got it in the summer, it had curdled and was disgusting, and you didn't want to drink it. And mm-hmm. I remember my parents had a strategy, or some did, which was they would give you sort of powdered chocolate that you could funnel into the milk that had been delivered in the morning, but you didn't get the break till two or three hours afterwards. It had been left in the sun and was absolutely disgusting. So, yes, there are these funny 
quite physical recollections one has of these things. Um, so, yes, so that was very powerful for you growing up. And, of course, this was a, a struggle that went on uh, in Wales. It went on in, in Nottingham, in Leeds, in various parts of Britain that have had big deposits of coal and become important were important parts there. And in some ways there are still families ripped apart, not just by the de the debates, but by the poverty generated by the abject failure to restructure labor or to allow labor to restructure itself, which becomes as much a crime of the Labour Party as it was then of the Tories, um, at least in, in my view. But it was the last great union uprising until the, I guess, the most recent one, which your students would know about a lot, which yeah. with trains and nurses and doctors and so on, right? And university staff. And, right, that might be the one that has a greater impact on some of them and faculty as well. Yeah. So did you have you found it um, easy to explain or, or, or valuable to explain to students the situation for the faculty or do they get it right away? It's difficult. It, in in some ways, yes, they get it. But that you know, things are really hard for students at the moment in terms of the cost of living, in terms of you know the amount of uh, other jobs that they need to do in order to be at university. The enormous debt that they're taking on, and yeah, it's. It, I find teaching really hard in this kind of environment. Because you, it's easy to lose trust. I suppose, like a lot of education, is about building up trust with, you know, trust that they can they can go with you with what you're with what the stories that you're telling them or the knowledge that you want to reproduce and to create that relationship actually takes quite a lot of time and and then the strikes you know they sever that to a certain extent. So on a so that's been that's been hard, but also you know students also understand they can also see it happening in the NHS and on the trains and and um, they're just caught up in it. It's just really difficult, really difficult. And you're a professor of promotional culture. I think I've got that the promotional culture bit right. Yeah, promotional media. Yeah. Gosh, I'm sorry, promotional media. Thanks. Could you tell us a bit about that? I mean, at one level, I guess we can all understand what it is. At another level, I realise I don't know what promotional media means. <laughs> um, I'm writing a textbook um, <laughs> called Promotional Media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in some ways, all media is promotional, you know. Um, but let me yeah I, how to how to think about it well the way i suppose that online space has been completely commercialized in terms of data collection and categorization and the way that it's done through trackers and um the way that we have these data bodies online and the way that brands manage to appropriate everything incorporate all social justice movements all counterculture into their brands and defang it in that way the immense amount of surveillance that's occurring um you know how how students at the well young people at the moment 
are just surveyed constantly and all the time and just having their data just extracted in ways that they connect with each other and in their entertainment and the kinds of effects of that, I suppose. Um, yeah, so so thinking about the sort of back end, I suppose, the data collection, the algorithms, these forms of that's changing what media is. So that's sort of turning all media basically into promotional media as, you know, as people, as data points, and then as entertainment that's ad that's basically advertising. When I was preparing to chat to you and reading some of your work, I, I downloaded something that had as its title, Winch Control Society. And I thought, <laughs> oh, wow, Professor Allison has created her own society of people who control or do not wish to be controlled or do wish to be controlled or don't wish to control or whatever it is. I was very excited. But in fact, it's not a society that you've created. It's a paper <laughs> about this concept. Yeah. Building on Deleuze's Control Society. Yes. That he yes. wrote in the early 90s, I think. And I think in that in that article, I wrote it in 2015, I was thinking ab about the ways that the sort of internalised male gaze is passed around between women and girls, a kind of girlfriend gaze, and yes. how that's kind of policing and regulating and misogynist forms of... Um, including class hierarchies and um yeah it's passed around um on the internet basically three platforms and how this has been remediated from women's magazines for example and women's friendships and some of the difficulties of them are some of the important themes in much of your work that's right i wrote a book called girlfriends which was looking at well, initially, I wanted to write about female friendship, which is sort of the most important intimacy in my life. But it ended up being quite a dark book about the way that female friendship is mediated and harnessed and used by magazines or, you know, other forms of media, film, television, in order to sort of uh, reproduce this policing gaze reproduce these ideals of normative femininity that offer both a sense of belonging and intimacy but also that also has to rely on exclusion and normativity to certain extents yeah and can you tell us where the darkness came from when you started writing the book because you you mention in in quite a bit of your work the importance and number of female friendships in your life and work did you start out with a more positive intent and then got, I was going to say, overwhelmed by or things were recast for you when you looked at this in media terms? Yeah, I suppose it was a particular moment. So it was the late 2000s, early 2010s that I was writing the book, which was a particular moment in terms of uh, representations of female friendship. And which I really enjoyed watching and I can watch things and, and consume things in quite a sort of unanalytical, unanalytical way. Um, but yeah, so I was interested in this sort of research or this yeah resurgence of these representations of female friends. But then obviously when I started to look at it in more detail, it was 
so much about reproducing ideas of competitiveness and rivalry and jealousy and um, antagonism and also especially around the body and around sexuality. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of, it was like misogyny had been harnessed and like, yeah, remediated through these different forms of media, which was probably the way that media needed to change in order to keep capturing larger audiences, female audiences. But it seems as though, at least in terms of your network of friends, it's not as though this is overpowering and omniscient, is it? This tendency in the media? Or are there things you're constantly struggling with? The media's, I mean, the media's changed now because now it's moved all online and it's very niche and it's located primarily within certain platforms that are algorithmic generated so you know i'm not on social media i'm on whatsapp so it doesn't i don't really i don't see it i don't really engage with it but what i'm hearing from my students is that it's very intense this idea of posting you know needing to post needing to comment needing to like needing to look a certain way to your friends is is seems to have intensified rather than um yeah rather than being freed and but obviously there are also online communities that are spaces to escape escape from this gaze escape from this commercialization but again the commercialization it needs it needs to create this sense of lack in order to succeed and so it sort of you know it seems to penetrate everywhere you know and getting back to the value of the female friendship could you talk a little bit about that, as well as there are these very negative aspects of representation? And you've written about um, body image and being allegedly overweight and so on as a question of femininity in this. But putting that aside, tell us, if you could, about the wonderful bits of female friendship that matter to you. Because I've just noticed in a few of your acknowledgements the wonderful depth of feeling that is exhibited when you write about this. Yeah, well, friendship, it, it sustains me. It's my reason for living, I suppose, the the joy of being with my friends and that sense of connection, that sense of being be, beyond myself, not, not just not being alone, but being deeply connected mm. to other people and... Yeah, those those moments, you know, when I'm with my friends are joyous and they're very much a part of who, who I am and how I understand myself. And that's always been the case, I think. I've always had, you know, even when I was quite young, I had very important friends who I'm still friends with and they were a form of intimacy outside my family that were hugely um, sustaining and loving and talking about time and history and friendship you and others have also written and edited extensively about generational change about generational feminisms intergenerational feminisms you know and so on could you share with us with us a little bit about that yeah, it's true. I've written quite a lot about generation, but, you know, it's one of those terms I think that I will never understand. And maybe that's why I keep coming back to it. 
just want to pin it down. Now I know what it is. And I think it's both nothing and and an explanatory tool. Hmm. So it can explain it can explain something about changes in history, for example, but I don't think it can ever explain a whole cohort of people unless you think about it in relation to the conjuncture. So unless you can think about it in, in, in relation to other social and political forces that are happening at the same time. And in a way, like the idea of the millennial or the Gen Z or the Gen X or you know, baby boomers. They're both sort of mark they're marketing categories in some ways, but it's a way of objectifying a group of people, isn't it? Which is nece- which is always going to be reductive. Um, and yet it still circulates so much in you know, so much in culture. And in- and increasingly generation these generational categories. So that's partly why I'm so fascinated in it. Why why can't culture let go of these categories? Why can't culture let go of generation? And then and I think genera- the idea of generation also makes me sad because it's so, so much focuses on difference, difference in terms of age. Well, unless we're going to have collectivities and solidarities that are intergenerational, then, you know, we're never going to get anywhere. It's so important to think of ways that we can come together rather than, you know, break apart because of age but then we can also think about age in relation to i mean generation in relation to age or life cycle um and uh, political political movements as well so there are lots of different ways that we can think about it and often they get all mushed together in a way in the discourse often for often for political purposes one of the things i'm wrestling with at the moment is the debate about Joe Biden and his cognitive capacities or otherwise. And I'm wrestling with it, at least for me, because on the one hand, I think about the fact that the Senate, where he worked, of course, for many years, has been a province of, uh, should we say, very mature, (laughs) at least in a sense of age, white Mm. men and the limitations that that produces in terms of justice and access. And on the other, the sort of wildly discriminatory way in which his lapses of memory are being manipulated. And I don't know what to think about it. Have you got any hints for me about that? Or do you have any responses to it? Especially in the last three or four days, it's been such a big topic. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of passing it out as two different things so to have a older white man can capture a wider um voting public perhaps but his cognitive decline yeah i mean that is it is very problematic the way that that's being the way that ageism is being harnessed in order to attack him at the same time it's very problematic that you know we have this white man as president yet again and i don't know i don't think i've got anything very interesting to say about it well i haven't read or heard or thought anything interesting yet (laughs) (laughs) so you're not alone you're not alone it's just that i'm trying to wrestle with how to think about it 
And I think you're saying that parsing it in two different but linked connect directions is very helpful, actually. That, that's really great. Now, I wanted to ask you about your own body in this. And that derives from, I think you have a Neo-Chaucerian poem that you introduce. I hope I'm using the right language. I'm sorry if I'm not. By talking about how some of this was driven by morning sickness or the experience the experiences surrounding morning sickness? Um, yeah, so one yeah, one poem is taken from, well, I mean, I said taken from, I suppose inspired by this character, Alison, who's in Chaucer's The Miller's Tale, and yeah. she's a kind of bawdy character in The Miller's Tale. And again, one of those characters that I find hugely generative and um that sort of take on a life of their own in terms of my head. And the fact that she's called Alison's also a bit of a, you know, a bit of a joke because I often feel, well, I always feel very sort of disassociated from my name whenever I see it written down. Oh, that's supposed to be me. <laughs> so, yeah, and I wrote it when I was pregnant and I had terrible morning sickness and I brought that, those feelings, experiences into my poems. So my poems were, they're not autobiographical, but they will take fragments, fragments of my life or feelings mm. or something, and 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 create something bigger through these characters, but also really amplify them. So one of the the fun that I have in writing poetry is amplifying and exaggerating and taking it as far as I, as far as I can take it, you know, and. So it's, yeah, it's very pleasurable, I suppose, writing. And I suppose the experiences of my body do go in the physicality of the characters that I'm writing about as well. So Hobbes also has, is very embodied, I suppose, yeah. And how does that relate to scholarly writing, for example? I mean, do you feel as though there are very different selves expressing each other in these forms of writing or are there things that link them is one easier or harder than the other mm, that's a good question I don't know if easy or hard is the right is the way that I approach it I suppose in some ways academic writing is easier not that I find it that easy because there's more of a temp you know yeah I'm drawing more on a certain voice that is the voice that you need to have to write an academic book. Whereas with poetry, you d you don't. I mean, you, you, the voice can be multiple and multifarious, and and it's and it's not fixed at all. And in fact, I'm much more self conscious of the voice and how that's working. And often with poetry, I don't want to think about it too much. I want to I want it to be much more playful and much more enjoyable but then it's hard in it's also hard in a different way I can't sit down and write a poem I have to have some kind of thing that I'm um sort of cha channeling isn't the right word but something is coming to me whereas with academic writing well, I suppose yeah I have ideas but do is both of them oh sorry go ahead it's a different process mm -hmm. and I would like to bring the two together and it's something that that's what I'm aspiring to do, but I actually don't know how I would do that. 
I think it would be wonderful to have all that scholastic endeavor illustrated by poems where relevant. Not as though this would have to happen in every article or in every chapter or after every 10 pages, but where it meant something. In the same way as people use cartoons or photographs or fragments from different authors writing in different ways. Do you edit as much in both idioms? Do you go back and recraft things as much? Yeah, I probably edit more with the poetry than the academic, but it's also difficult to quantify because obviously an academic book is massive. And yeah, the last book that we wrote on the new patriarchs went through many drafts. And with the uh, editing the poetry, it's much more micro. Mm. I might write lots and lots of stuff and then get rid of all of it apart from one line. And then with my academic writing, I suppose I also write quite a lot in order to, I often work out what it is I'm thinking through writing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, maybe a lot of that goes as well. Um, but yeah. The process of writing, I think, is probably very important to me. So I was quite shy. I suppose I am still very shy. So writing is a way for me to access my thoughts and my ideas in a way that feels, um, I don't know if this is the right word, but safe or very creative, productive for me to work through ideas or work out what it is I'm feeling or work out what it is that I'm thinking. And you mentioned your fairly recent co-authored book on bro culture, as it were, the uh, sort of hegemonic boys of Silicon Valley. And I'd love to hear more about that in a moment. But before we talk about that, I wonder if you could talk about collaboration, because you've co-authored a lot, you've co-edited a lot. What's that like compared to the monastic figure sitting in the abbey, beavering away. I love collaboration. Yeah, it's great. I find it it helps the project move because on a very basic level, I love to meet up with the person that I'm editing or writing with. That's fun. And then you know when I'm I'm lacking in energy or lacking in confidence, they they're, they're still moving it or whether they are, they're feeling completely disheartened, then I can move it along. So there's a lot of mutual reinforcement there, but also their brains are different from my brain. And, uh, you know, I love that sort of uh, the alchemy of bringing these different ideas together. So with Ben, who I wrote New Patriarchs with, he approaches things in quite a different way from me, sees things in quite a different way. And so that's really interesting you know it really widens my um area of vision yeah that I would never I would never have thought of that but then that that brings in something new and creates much better work than I would be able to do on my own and I've just written a article with uh someone else about um uh, American television in this post me too movement where these female friends are killing off the husbands or killing off the father. And we had a lot of fun watching the TV shows together and just working out our ideas to the point where we were doing this a lot of this online together. 
and we were editing each sentence together online, which was hard, but at the same time, it was it was fun. And it wouldn't one of these wouldn't involve people named Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman, would it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were looking at Big Little Lies, and we were looking at Dead to Me and Good Girls. But actually, it's a whole genre of yeah. of um, murder, and it just seems to be this post Me Too movement where these TV shows are speculating: what do we do now? There's these awful men, and but instead of sort of or thinking about these in terms of structures, you just think about the individual bad man that just yeah, seems kill to, him, <laughs> just kill him off, and get away with it, and get away with it, and it'll all be fine. And then still, but still reproducing the household and reproducing the often the whiteness and the normativity of the household, but this time between the female friends. So they're ultimately conservative. Um, Apart from maybe good girls, which is is a bit more a bit more subversive, a bit more radical. Um, but yeah, it's in, it's really interesting the way that that Me Too, um, yeah, Me Too and culture is having this effect on TV shows and other other media forms of novel, for example, and the way that they're negotiating with the present conjuncture and being part of the culture culture strands of the present conjuncture and what's shifting there. And I think TV novels are both very interesting places at the moment, maybe because they're very long form, that they have these characters, these characters are hugely ambivalent and can explore these real complexities. They've got a lot of time to explore it. And, um, yeah, it's fascinating. One of the things that always interests me about novels is that they're so gendered in terms of readership nowadays. Mm the the patience and investment required in reading the novel come yeah. more to women than men nowadays particularly younger women it's uh, quite remarkable to see the lack of engagement by young men with literature and That's i'm not distinguishing literature from fiction in that conventional way i just mean you know a thing called a book it's yeah. a significant difference i think yeah, it's interesting. I just read two books recently, uh, one by Yomi Adoke, The List, and one by, um, God, what's her name? Dolly Aldred. And they've both got male characters, or they switch between male and female characters, which I thought was very interesting. Also thinking about this, you know, this current moment that we're in and the way that they have these male characters that are grappling with what it means to be heterosexual and a man, and a young man at this moment, and yeah, so I see, I see some, I see also that also circulating in the culture, but as a, as a topic, as a theme, as a topic, yeah. but yeah, but they're they're female authors that are primarily marketed to women, I imagine, even though the the characters are men. And for all the fact that the publishing industry is so patriarchally dominated in terms of, you know, all those debates about who runs the industry, who wins mm. prizes, who gets nominated for prizes, who judges prizes and so on. Yeah. Um, so, Prof. Allison, going back to the recent book, the one about the new patriarchy of U.S. communications technology, amongst others, could you tell us a bit of, about that and how you did it? It's interesting because it the chapters are separated by in mostly the names of particular people 
Mm. So could you tell us a bit about the book? Yeah, so we were looking at these platforms and these corporations that are founded and headed by these white men. Um, and then also thinking about the TV shows that were going that were also being broadcast at the time, like um, Silicon Valley and Halt and Catch Fire. And it, it seemed to be a particular moment in the 2010s that was trying to legitimate this kind of power in various forms of culture, but also in terms of the founders themselves. So we started to think about these founders as a network, how they managed to become so powerful, so wealthy, and have such a monopoly over online space in such a short time. And we also, we noticed that when Trump was, um, and when he was first inaugurated, the first thing that he did was invite these tech founders to Trump Tower and have this meet, very highly publicized meeting with them. So there was, you know, there's a deal that was then brokered because um, in Silicon Valley, they vote primarily for Democrat. That was where their money was was going. And that may, you know, so that made us think about patriarchy, but also at the time, or still, patriarchy is a very, it's a troubling concept. It's had a lot of um, criticism for being universalist, essentialist, that it doesn't take into account the sort of granular details of the moment, for example. It can be very overarching. So, but at the same time, there's something useful about that concept of patriarchy that we wanted to hold on to because it did do a lot of work in explaining the the maleness or the, the maleness and the white supremacy of this of this power that was being located in in US tech. Um, we're both media studies lecturers also, so we're both thinking about things through... We, in the end, we didn't really talk about t- TV shows. Initially, we were going to talk about TV shows and, and the way that Silicon Valley was being legitimated in multiple cultural forms. But we ended up just thinking about these people as celebrities, so thinking about the way that they justify and legitimate their power through their own celebrity personas, which they all do in different ways. So that was one thing. The methods for the book was we took about 100 books about Silicon Valley or that were written from Silicon Valley or about Silicon Valley, so kind of airport books. And we cut them up, we put them in en vivo just to think about, and we thought about it as a corpus. So we're thinking about what are the ideologies, you know, on a very basic level, how many times does man appear? How many times does woman appear? How many times does he appear? How many times does she appear? on that very basic level, but also thinking about the kind of ideologies that were circulating there. And what we found was, obviously, he was completely dominant. and um, But there was very much a founder myth. So the founder myth, taking on the colonial frontier, the American frontier myth, uh, finding, finding a so-called empty space, putting your homestead down, you know, building your farm, was very much the way that these founders and and people f- working in Silicon Valley at at their level in general were think were talking about their at the time startups or were talking about their platforms or talking about why they were doing what they were doing. So they're probably also talking to venture capitalists in a way and the way that they were harnessing this frontier myth, this white settler colonial myth, was also justifying and giving power to what they were 
what they were doing. So that was interesting in terms of thinking about the, the very specificity of their colonial ideologies that they were harnessing. But they were also drawing on boy genius sort of stereotypes as well. And yeah, this idea of the homestead and this, you know, this humble, humble beginning, which made us think about how they were running their corporations as homesteads or as households with them at the top with their exotic share options, which means they basically control the corporations. And then how um, how the workforce is differently striated underneath them, you know, in terms of race and class and gender. And Damani Perry's work on patriarchy was really helpful here because she was talking about John Locke and his ideal of the household. And we could see this being the ideal of the white household, how we could see these um, the hierarchies that he's sort of idealising being replicated in terms of these corporations. So then thinking about patriarchy is very specifically, or we were looking very specifically at a certain patriarchal structure in so in US tech, West Coast tech, but also how these men were very much networked. So even though they might appear as individuals um, or rivals, so Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk having their fake cage fight, for example, exactly, is just part of their celebrity story. You know, they're rivals, but actually they've divided up the internet um, between themselves. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's a, they might, maybe they don't like each other in real life, I don't know, but... They're working as a network. It's not a group of different, completely disparate individuals. And so we can see this also with the space, these space projects, again, using this language of colonialism and the final frontier and these idea, this idea of the empty space and that they're the, her the heroes that are out to put down their homestead. They're... I've forgotten what the question was. but I was asking about the book. Right, yeah. Really, and it was just to get you to talk about it a bit, and you've done that wonderfully. So whatever the question specifically was, you answered it and more. So that's terrific. I um, I actually was on a panel for a couple of hours with one of the people you write about many, uh, many years ago who, and this is, you know, Mr. PayPal, and uh, he's a Girardian. He grew up studying René Girard's philosophy slash literary criticism. Mm. And that tells you a lot both about Girard's misogyny and conservatism, although I think a very brilliant critic, but also this guy's attitude to universities because, you know, the great plan is to destroy the, the humanities in yeah. US colleges. He has the most explicit political plan of any of these bastards. Uh, and... I didn't know him from Adam or Eve or both when we met, but he was already famous to everybody else in the room. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of environment, Prof. Allison, where you encounter a thought or a program or a theory or a person who that's incredibly famous and influential, and you've got no fucking clue what's being discussed. It doesn't mean anything to you. This happens to me with a sort of rather appalling regularity. And this was one such occasion. So I didn't treat him with the deference needed. Girard was there in the front row with that massive head he had, nodding occasionally when the big man from PayPal spoke and looking not so much cross as completely uninterested when I did. 
<laughs> anyway. Wow, it, it, that's really interesting. And what were, what were your what were your impressions? He was I think very influenced by I guess Girard's conversion to Catholicism and by what he saw as the value of that. He was entirely dismissive of me. And, you know, it was just the two of us on a panel for, I don't know, an hour and a half or something. It's actually on YouTube, but I've never watched it. And I misjudged everything in that I I didn't dress properly. I didn't prepare properly. It's just one of those undistinguished moments in your life. A bit like today for me. (laughs) (laughs) No, you've got your, you know, Battle of Britain Victor coat on. What are you talking about? (laughs) Although this is only audio, I can assure listeners that Prof. Allison is definitely dressed as the one woman in the RAF who up there in the skies took on Jerry and taught him a thing or two. (laughs) No, it was one of those things where it was just demoralising. My other story to share with you, if I may, is that I was one of a few hundred people that Facebook invited to its campus to tell it about the future a few years ago. And it was carefully selected so it was 50% boys and 50% girls and 99% white. And I complained. <laughs> no one at the event would speak to me afterwards or, in fact, during, other than to tell me that I was not going to be invited back. Other than the fact that because I lived for many years in California, I'm used to the gaze that Scientologists have at you. I don't know if you've ever met many Scientologists, Prof. Uh, Well, you will have met many people who are complete believers in something. Mm -hmm. This may include yourself. But the true believer is a tough nut when they've got you in their sights and they won't let you go until you become them, right? We've all seen that kind of thing. Scientologists are big on this in LA. It's huge. Anyway, because no one talked to me at this event, and there were lots of really interesting and really famous people, but I just made myself an idiot in the eyes of everybody at the first moment of my because of complaining about the whiteness. But the only people who would talk to me were some of the machine learning experts who the ones that I met were mostly women. And they would sidle up to me when I was sitting on my own having a cup of tea and say, what do you think of Mark? To which I would helpfully reply, Mark who? <laughs> which probably, you know, okay, was obviously smart ass as your quasi smile shows you recognize. But they were so drugged that they didn't actually take it awry. They didn't take it amiss. They didn't take it as a an adolescent male insult, which it was. They just kept repeating the question until finally I'd say, I've never met him. (laughs) And um, then their heads would roll, the eyes would start going backwards and forwards, and they took off to find another candidate. (laughs) So they were... You mean that they were so sort of, they've drank so much of the Kool-Aid that, yeah. When was that? I think a lot of them have prepared the Kool-Aid and then had some of it themselves. I'm, I'm reading this book at the moment called Work, Pray, Code, 
don't know if you come across it by Carolyn. Sorry, you know, by that Carolyn Chen. And oh, wonderful title! Yes, yes, of course, yes. I've yeah, read talking about the ways it. that these corporations build spirituality into their sort of work practices in order to get, um, well, for different reasons. But I was just talking about this with a colleague yesterday who feels very passionate about something to do with work. And we were just, we were talking about the difference between compassion and compliancy, because actually what they want is compliancy, not passion, because passion can be pretty. Oh, oh, I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement on the threshold of entering the building, as did everybody else, which I'm clearly breaking now, but because my arguments are unimportant. Maybe nothing will happen, but who knows, Prof. A, you could be part of a very famous moment with this confessional exchange on my part. But yeah, this was February 2017, and mm. um, there were, you know, some of the fa- so-called founders of the internet were amongst our number, and it was just, you know, celebration of so-called cognitive capitalism. It was, mm. it was utterly dispiriting and demoralizing. Mm. and I felt completely alone and stupid, Mm. to be honest. Well, you were probably supposed to. (laughs) Maybe. One thing I'll tell you that you'll enjoy, when I say it was all white, there were one or two South Asian guys, but not many. But every 15 minutes, Latino cleaners would come and scrub every surface clean. And if you're interested, I'll send you offline a few photos that I... Talk clandestinely. Yeah, that, I think that's what we were trying to get at in the idea of the replication of the colonial household through these corporations, which are so much marked by racial and gendered hierarchies with this, you know, patriarch, white patriarch on the top of it. It seem, just seems extremely regressive and, yeah, as you say, quite frightening. Well, very even, frightening. Even in the boys' toilets... There were dozens of tampons as well as toothbrushes available to take. They were just, they were next to the wash basins. Completely bizarre things, I thought. Is that so so that the men can take responsibility? Was it? For what? (laughs) For their feet. Who knows? I mean, I, I couldn't work any of it out. And in the stalls, in the men's toilets, there were signs everywhere about, don't laugh, today's big push, which would be hortatory precepts that people should be following. So it's exactly what you say. And you guys, I think, really nailed it in the book. It's a wonderful book that I heartily recommend to people. I wonder if the tampons were there for trans men. I suppose that's possible, but I think that would be more likely today than in February 2017 because Mm -hmm. these questions have become more vibrant for the bros than Mm -hmm. they were back then. But I know what you mean. It's possible. I just don't think they were there at that point. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. So, Prof, I had one more question for you, if I may. And then after I ask my question, I want to throw it open to you, lest there be things that you want to subtract from what we've said or add. 
So my question is, how do you discover things? That's a good question. So I probably discover things through multiple ways. So talking to people, my friends, talking to my students, I discover a lot from my students in terms of what they're saying and how they're experiencing the world and the kinds of media that they're negotiating. So those are probably the two main ways that I discover things, but I also discover things on a deeper level through writing about it. So, and obviously reading, I mean, yeah, reading, obviously. But the process of writing, I find really useful for getting somewhere further than I, than I can just through thinking about it. Mm. Makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and do you do you always write on a keyboard or do you sometimes use pens or pencils? Increasingly on a keyboard, but I enjoy writing in notebooks. Especially if I'm going to be writing poetry kind of things. And obviously in terms of thoughts, they might they might mix and turn into a poem rather than academic writing. But the process of writing I the actual process of writing is quite mm. different, I think, mm. for the two mediums. Well, thank you. That's a really great, concise answer, I think, about where ideas come from, where you get stimulated and how you stimulate yourself to come through with them. So wonder if there are things, as I said, that you'd like to add to or subtract from what we've discussed. Yes, my, maybe. I just I suppose there's certain points where I just wanted to say something else and I wonder if I could say those things. So when we were talking about Thatcher and how Thatcher her impulse was to change the soul of soul of the people. And then one of one of these ways that she did this was to was through housing and getting people to buy their own homes. And how much how much that changed. That housing is such a key issue at the moment with people who are don't have anywhere to live, can't afford to live anywhere, and how housing or real estate is the key, is the key provider of wealth in the UK, which is you know so we're living in this asset economy, which is just um, frightening. So I'm sort of picking up on the household stuff from the new patriarchs and thinking about the household in general, the promotional household to bringing together my work on promotional media and the health you know the idea of the household and how this privatized the reproduction of this privatized space is often cast as you know you could have a sustainable household but that's just it's just not it's not possible to have this sustainable privatized household it's not sustainable in terms of you know the planet um, so I'm thinking through those kinds of questions in terms of the promotional household, but at the same time, writing this textbook on promotional media and how promotional media is, in a way, the sort of don't look up of the contemporary moment. So how capitalism is reproducing itself. I mean, how does capitalism continue to reproduce itself in these huge inequalities and, um, you know, abuses? Well, a lot of that's through promotional media. You know, so the advertising around or the targeted advertising around fast fast fashion, for example. And the more I look into it, the more I think, God, 
promotional media really has so much to answer for. It's just doing so much work in keeping these economies, these economies going and sort of giving a sop in terms of oh, it's sustainable or well, none of it, you know, none of it's sustainable. And yeah, so just thinking, trying to think through these ideas in terms of my current research. I think this is going to be much more than a textbook, Prof. I think it's going to be exciting new knowledge. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was wonderful. I love reading your work, and I feel as I've learned more in the last hour, thanks to you, and uh, it's been a terrific experience. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it.